My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's Thanksgiving. Okay, so I'm going to share with you a story from one of my Thanksgivings when I was about 14 years old. So growing up, um, nearly every Thanksgiving, as a, as a child, we, we would spend our Thanksgivings out in West Texas with my granddad and with my grandmom. Now, I love West Texas. I love being a part of these Thanksgivings. Just great memories. But there's this one Thanksgiving in particular that I, that I really remember. And I was, again, about 14 years old. And we showed up, and my granddad had bought a new excavator, a mini excavator, a bobcat, just a great piece of machinery. And he, the intended purpose of this excavator was to push back brush, to uh, dig up cedars and mesquites, and just eradicate that species, that invasive species from the property for the livestock, so grass would grow and things like that. And my uncle who lived out there, he showed us how to operate it. And he even let us operate it. He, he let us go to a pasture and we got to sink the, the forks into, you know, deep inside or underneath a cedar and mesquite and lift it up. And it was, as a 14-year-old, let me tell you what, that was about as much fun as you could possibly have. And being in a mini excavator, rolling around and just pushing brush. A lot of fun. Well, later that night, while my parents are probably inside with, with family members catching up, not having seen each other in a long time. Later that night, my brother, my cousin, and I got a great idea. Why don't we take the excavator out for a little stroll, a little spin? Sounds good, right? Well, you know, if I would have known now, or if I would have known then what I know now, I wouldn't have taken it out, but I also wouldn't have this awesome story that I'm sharing with you this morning. So take away God's, uh, God redeems. He's in the redemption business. So anyway, we took the bobcat out as kids on our own at night. And we went to the dump, the backside of, of my granddad's place there. And at first we were just using it the way my uncle showed us how to use it. We were sinking the forks into the ground, lifting up mesquite and cedar, and it was just having a great time. And, you know, for the most part, it was innocent fun. But after a while, one of us got the grand idea, instead of using the excavator according to its intended purpose, why don't we use it to lift up that old junker over there? It's just an old car that had been sitting out at the dump forever. It's just a rust heap. Not much left to it. You see how this is escalating, don't you? So at first, we just kind of went over there and just kind of beat up the junker a little bit. The forks on that bobcat just sunk right into the side of that car like a hot knife through butter. It was just such a cool sight. Um, well, then, then, then we decided, hey, let's lift the ex or let's lift the car up. Let's see if we can let's see the, the power that this excavator has. Sure enough, just lifted it right up. And then one of us got the idea of them all. Let's flip over the car. Let's flip the car over with the excavator. So that all sounded great in theory, so sink the forks right in, started to raise the lift up with the car on it, and everything's going according to plan, until the car slipped off the forks, and the forks are all the way up, the lift is all the way up, and here's the problem. The bobcat was not on flat ground, it wasn't on level ground, it was on an incline, it was on a hill. And so with the forks all the way up, when the car slipped off, the, fork, the forks created uh, an off balance with the hill and we tumped over backwards and the thing landed on its backside and it shut off. That's a sinking feeling, let me tell you. If I've ever had a sinking feeling at 14, that was it. 
So what do teenagers do? Well, we got to flip this thing back over. We tried. You can't flip over an excavator laying on its back. It just, you just can't do it. So it was time to get adults' help. Okay, we fessed up, came and got the adults to come help us. We didn't have any other choice. You see, the bobcat was a great piece of machinery. It really was. And when used properly, it worked like a charm. It did exactly what it was intended to do. But when used incorrectly or foolishly, in my case, it led to ruin. It did. It led to ruin. It cost us a pretty penny to fix that bobcat. And even more than that was the trust that I lost with my mom, my dad, my uncle, family members. Of course, we regained that, but it was a steep price to pay for using something improperly. And so the passage we're looking at today, I say all that for this. The passage we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians, it deals with a group of so-called knowledgeable believers. Okay, so that's one group, knowledgeable believers who were incorrectly using something far more valuable and precious than a mini excavator. They were using it incorrectly, that is. So what this group of so-called knowledgeable believers was doing was they were taking their knowledge of God, theology, truth. They were taking truth and they were using it as a tool to justify their sinful actions. They were using it as a tool incorrectly to get what they wanted. In specifics, uh, the specifics of what they were doing in our passage is they were taking truth and they were using it to defend why it was acceptable for them to enter into temples and eat and feast with all these idolaters at a feast dedicated to that idol, to eat the meat inside a temple. And so what Paul will warn them is the consequences of using truth this way. Okay, so they were taking something good and using it improperly. The consequences of using truth this way was making them a stumbling block. Now we've heard that term before. This is one of the passages where it comes from. Making them a stumbling block to other believers. In other words, the truth is never meant to be used to lead other believers to sin. To lead them to ruin, as we will see. So we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in doing so, here's the question we will work to answer. How do we correctly wield truth? Okay, how do we properly use truth in the, in the Christian community? What's the purpose of our knowledge of God, of our, of our theology? What's its aim? We're going to talk, uh, take this chapter in three parts. First, we're going to talk about how these so-called knowledgeable Corinthians were actually improperly using it. I was using a mini excavator to lift up a junker, led to ruin. They were using knowledge, using truth incorrectly, improperly. Next, we're going to look at how the we're going to look at the specifics of these negative consequences. What happened? Oh, when I used the excavator wrongly, it, it went over on its back. Well, what happened when these so-called knowledgeable believers improperly used truth to get what they want? And finally, we're going to bring this all together and we're going to answer our question, how do we correctly wield knowledge, wield truth in the Christian community? Because we're a Bible church. We, we value truth. We love truth. Again, that's knowledge of God used wrongly, its consequences and the proper use. So read with me 1 Corinthians 8. It's only 13 verses. I'm just going to read through it. You'll follow along with me. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so our first point, we're going to look at knowledge used improperly, the misuse of truth in the Christian community. Look at verse 1 with me, and here we see the surface level issue from the Corinthians' perspective. It's, it's that phrase there, food offered to idols. Now again, it's the acceptability of eating food offered to idols within the temple. Now, we find mention of idol food several times in our passage. And I'm just going to point them out to you. We see it here in verse 1, but then in verse 4, if you just look down at verse 4, we see again, eating of food offered to idols. Then verse 7, eat food as really offered to an idol. In verse 10, to eat food offered to an idol. So, I wanted you to see that, that this is, from the Corinthians' perspective, the heart of the issue. Okay? So what's going on here? Well, here's the backstory. What, what's, what's the issue here? Why, why is Paul talking about it? Well, Paul wrote the Corinthians a letter that precedes 1 Corinthians, uh, which Paul even makes mention of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So there's a letter he wrote to them that we don't have today, and that's fine. The Bible we have today is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. It's it's completely sufficient for our walk with God. So we don't have this, this letter that Paul wrote to the first Corinthians. He probably in this letter included instruction from the, the Jerusalem council, which you can read about in Acts 15. Now the point of that council was to facilitate fellowship between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. God deeply cares about the fellowship of his children and he wanted the church to be united. And so in this council, they, they laid out some ground rules for what uh, Gentile Christians needed to um, just let go of in, in order to fellowship with the Jews, the Jewish believers. And it primarily had to do with what kind of food they could eat at the fellowship meal with the uh, Jewish believers. However, some of these so-called knowledgeable 
Corinthians, okay? They wrote Paul a letter back. And in that letter, it seems they, they not only questioned Paul's instructions on the matter of what kind of food they could eat, but it seems they outright rejected his instructions. And in that letter that they wrote back to him, they supplied Paul with truth as to why they could continue to eat whatever food they wanted. And even more than that, it seems that they offered Paul truth for why they could walk into the temples and eat the food offered to the idol with other idolaters in the mass of this false worship. Okay, it's, it's kind of like when you tell your child, don't, don't hit your brother. And then she turns around and hits her brother and says, he deserved it. Okay, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Paul laid out instructions, they rejected, they wrote back and said, not only do we reject that, but we think we have a right to do even more than that. We think we have a right to go inside these temples and to eat whatever we want. So let's look at the text again. In verses 1, 4, and 8, we're going to find their rationale. We're going to find the truth that they supplied to Paul to justify why they could eat whatever food they wanted, wherever they wanted. And so in verse 1, you're going to see this phrase in quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge, okay? So they're saying, we have knowledge, Paul. We have truth, Paul. And we're using this knowledge, we're using this truth to validate our actions. What's the content of that knowledge? What did they actually know? Well, in verse 4, again in quotation marks, we see that they know that an idol has no real existence. Second, they know that there is no God but one. Okay, so first, idols aren't real. We know the one true God. We know these idols are, are nothing. And then in verse 8, this whole verse is either something that they supplied to Paul or Paul supplied to them just to kind of uh, help them think through what they're doing here. Verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So even though verse 8 is not in quotation marks, it, it's very probable that this is, again, the rationale for why they can eat whatever they want to eat whenever they want to eat it. So they're using truth to support their actions, okay? That's what they're doing. Here's what I want you to first note. These phrases or these truths independently are all true. These are all correct. There's only one God. Idols aren't real and food doesn't impact your relationship with God. He doesn't love you anymore because of what food you eat or don't eat. But the way they are using these truths, this theology, is totally incorrect. It's totally wrong. What they're doing is they are piecemealing together what they know to be true in order to get what they want. And what they want is, again, they want the freedom to exercise what they say are their rights. Paul, we've got rights. We've got freedom. We've got liberties in Christ. And for them, they have the right to eat inside the idols' temples because idols aren't real. We know the one true God, and food doesn't make a bit of difference. Read with me verse 9. Paul's saying, but take care that this right, this freedom, this liberty 
of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay. So this right, again, why are they insisting on this right? Well, it's helpful to understand that temples in Corinth were much more than just places of worship. They function as the butcher, they function as the restaurant, and as the banquet hall. It was the seat of so much civic and social activity. And so you can imagine how difficult it was for these Corinthians with knowledge to give up something so vital to their way of life, to perhaps their old friendships or their businesses, whatever it might be. But what's interesting also is that in chapter 10, so just two chapters later, Paul is going to explicitly forbid them from entering inside temples, from eating in temples, from feasting at these temple gatherings. He's going to flat out call it idolatry. So why doesn't he do that right here? Why doesn't he just get to the point and say, you can't do that, and here's why? Because he first needs to explain what they're doing with truth, how they're misusing truth. He doesn't get to the point about idolatry until he proves that point first. Truth is powerful. Truth is vital in the Christian community. But if you use it incorrectly or improperly, it leads to destruction and ruin. He wants them to understand this first. That we never use what's true about God to validate our right to exercise our liberties or our freedoms, if those liberties or those freedoms lead to the ruin of other believers. Read with me verse 10 again. For if anyone sees you, that is the, the Corinthians with so-called knowledge, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? To eat food offered to idols? So this, this bleeds right into our second point. With our second point, we're going to look at these negative consequences, this, the ruin, the destruction that follows in the wake of these so-called knowledgeable Christians misusing truth to get what they want, to justify their rights and their freedoms. So with our first point, we just saw that they're using it wrong and they're using it to validate some so-called liberty. But here we're going to really press in and and see the destruction that follows in their wake. So we, we, we're going to see Paul talk about what it means to be a stumbling block. To lead others to stumbling. And Paul takes that very seriously and so does God. So we see Paul talk about these destructive consequences in three verses that we're going to look at. Verses 7, 10, and 11. Alright, so verse 7. Read verse 7 with me. However... Not all possess this knowledge that we've already talked about, but some through formal, former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, so here he's going to start explaining these destructive consequences as a defiled conscience. A defiled conscience. On explaining this verse... Listen to the insights from one New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee. It's a bit lengthy, but it's helpful to understand what's going on in verse 7. Quote, By this, Paul means that even though all may believe at the theoretical level that an idol is no God, not all share this knowledge at the experiential or emotional level. 
this knowledge that there is only one God does not immediately eradicate the idolatrous beliefs and practices of a lifetime. The fact that their former way of life is woven into their consciousness and emotions in such a way that the old associations cannot be thus lightly disregarded. For them, to return to the place of their former worship would mean once more to eat as though it were truly being sacrificed to a God, end quote. What he's saying is that for these believers with a weak conscience, that to return to the temple would either truly mean a return to practicing idolatry and lead to their possible ensnarement to that practice once again. Or at the very least, it would make them fear, feel immorally pure, impure, morally impure, and which is a sin against their conscience. So it's important to note here, Paul is not labeling these with a weak conscience as less spiritual or weaker Christians. Paul is not contrasting strong, mature believers with weak, immature believers in this passage. What he's doing is he's contrasting the so-called knowledgeable, with all their freedoms and liberties, with those who have a weak conscience, those who have an entirely different testimony, an entirely different former life that is still somehow impacting them today. And he is citing, Paul is citing with those who have a weak conscience in this particular passage. The weak are simply those who must avoid certain situations, situations associated with their past. It creates in them too great a moral discord in their hearts and in their heads. And it can lead them to actual practice of sin once again. Or at the very least, it violates their conscience because they feel morally impure. So an illustration of this, um, my former pastor in Dallas shared from the pulpit that he simply cannot step foot in the Dallas Arts District anymore. The Dallas Arts District has all kinds of playhouses and the symphonies there. And, you know, for myself growing up near Dallas, I'd go and I love the, the, Christian perform- or the Christmas performances they have there. They're wonderful. But for my pastor in Dallas, because of his former life, all the experiences he has in his memories associated with sin, he cannot step foot in that district without feeling morally impure. It just, it just harms him. He feels defiled. So that's what I mean by this. So let's continue reading Paul's explanation of these, these consequences, these negative consequences of misusing truth to validate your rights and exercise those. Read with me verses 10 through 11. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Okay, so I want to show you guys something here. In verse 10, do you see that word encouraged in verse 10? In the Greek, it simply means built up. It's translated as encouraged or emboldened. It means to be built up. And then look at the word destroyed in verse 11. It means to be ruined. It means to be ruined. So putting this together, Paul is saying, you so-called knowledgeable Christians, 
who know this truth but are using it improperly to validate your rights. What you're doing is you're building up those brothers and sisters with a weak conscience. You're building them up so that they might be torn down. You're encouraging them for their own destruction. You're building them up so that they might be torn down. You're strengthening them so that they might be ruined. So why are these so-called knowledgeable Corinthians doing this to their brothers and sisters with a weak conscience? Well, for one, as, as I've said numerous times, they, they simply feel like they have a right to those freedoms because of their knowledge. They know that idols aren't real. They know food doesn't matter. They know there's one God. So they have a right to do what they want based on the truth. But second, this is very interesting from my perspective. They think that by exercising this freedom, exercising their right in front of other believers, it will somehow strengthen those with a weak conscience to get over whatever it is that's holding them back. Come on. You know food doesn't matter to God. You know these idols aren't real. Just know that. Tell yourself that and get over it. One scholar named Goddard says this type of approach to a believer with a weak conscience, he says, he enlightens and he strengthens him to his loss. Fine edification, that is. To enlighten and strengthen a brother or sister for their own loss. Another, talking about this kind of situation or approach, says, quote, Freedom that feels compelled to set others free is often an expression of bondage. Freedom that feels compelled to set others free is often an expression of bondage. So these so-called knowledgeable are wrongly using truth and it's leading to the ruin of their brothers and sisters with a weak conscience. So a modern day parallel to this, I'm sure you can think of some uh, in your own life, but some that I thought of would be drinking in front of a recovering alcoholic in order to help him be a Christian who can drink responsibly. I can teach you. You're free from bondage. God doesn't care if you drink. Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine or his first sign in the book of John. Or inviting a former gambling addict to Las Vegas in order to show him it's a great place for a family vacation with all those shows and whatnot. You don't have to gamble. There's so much other things you can do. You're free. So looking back to Gordon Fee, here's what he says. Quote, many such people must be forever removed from their former associations, including returning to their former haunts for evangelism, because the grip of their former life is so tenacious. Paul took the power of the demonic seriously, especially in the context of idolatry. Hence, his concern that a former idolater, by returning to his or her idolatries, will be destroyed. That is, he or she'll, she will return to former ways and be captured by them all the more. So it's worth noting here, verse 9 is the only explicit command in the whole passage. It's the only place where Paul uses an imperative. The full force of his apostolic authority, he is commanding them something in verse 9. Verse 9 says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now many see parallels of Paul's warning here about not being a stumbling block, a 
portal of temptation to Jesus' very similar warning in Matthew 18, verses 6 through 7, which I'm going to read for you. Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones, that's a disciple, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Stumbling block. So in our passage again, these so-called knowledgeable Corinthians are tempting those weak in conscience. They're inviting their brothers and sisters to sin, to stumble in their walk with God. Why? All because they have self-centered pursuits. They want what they want and they feel like they have a right to get it. There has to be a better way to handle truth in the Christian community, doesn't there? Surely there is. Of course there is. And Paul will show us. He will show us the way how we handle truth in the Christian community. So how do we do that? How do we correctly wield truth in the Christian community? In a word, love. Love. Knowledge must always be led by love, to love. Read with me verses 1 through 3 where we see Paul lay this out for us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So there's a contrast here I want to point out to you. Knowledge alone. Knowledge alone. Knowledge devoid of love. Knowledge alone devoid of love. It, it puffs up. It makes you arrogant. And as we see, it blinds you to become a stumbling block. Knowledge alone is not the aim of the Christian life. It's not. The aim is to love God, to love others. And this love leads to true knowledge. And so the purpose of our knowledge is to build others up in their faith, to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, the community of God, to build them up in their faith, their walk with God. This is love. Now look again at, at verse 1. I want to show you something here. This last phrase in verse 1. But love builds up. Okay, that word build up in verse 1. It's the same word that we already saw in verse 10. It's translated encourage. But it's used in two different ways. So what Paul is doing us, as he's doing for us here, is he's showing us that, that there's two opposing contrasting ways in which we can use our knowledge. An improper and a proper. On the one hand, if you allow truth alone, truth devoid of love, to guide your behavior in the Christian community, you're going to grow arrogant and blind. You're going to demand your own rights. And that's going to cost others terribly. It's going to harm their relationship with God. You're going to act like a hammer, basically. Everywhere you go, all your relationships, just hurting people because of your use of truth or your misuse of it. 
And in using your truth, you become so fixed on validating your rights, justifying your behavior, explaining why you're right and they're wrong. That's not freedom. That's not love. That's not true knowledge. But on the other hand, if you humbly admit that you don't know it all, you don't know it all, but you're known by God. Oh my goodness. You are known by God as His child. That far outweighs anything else you might know. God knows you. He loves you in Christ if you've trusted in His Son. And with that, you're free. You are now truly free to do what? To demand your rights? No. But to love others. To serve them. To care for them. To help them grow in their relationship with God. Even if that means you give up your rights which Jesus modeled for us, and which Paul models for us in this passage. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, I, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's not talking about going in temples or eating idol food bought in the marketplace here. He's saying, I'll give up whatever I need to give up. Whatever I need to give up, I'll give up my right so that I don't cause a brother to stumble, so I don't harm his or her relationship with God. Paul's got his priorities straight. He knows how to use his knowledge. It's to build others up. So these two paths, which one of these, these paths do you think leads to, to true freedom, tr true knowledge, peace? Is it the one that's swollen with conceit and demands your, your rights to be affirmed so that you can enjoy what you want to enjoy? Or is it the path of humility and self-denial governed by love? So I want you to note that Paul grounds his instructions here, not just simply in his apostolic authority. He's not just making commands. He's going to ground his instructions here for Christian behavior, for love. He's going to ground that in the character of God and the outworking of God's plan of salvation. That's what he grounds this in, and I'll show you here. Read with me verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Okay, this is his theological basis for his command to love. There's two phrases I want to point out to you here. The first is the phrase, for whom we exist. We exist for God the Father. And the second is, through whom we exist. We exist through Christ. We belong to God, those of us who've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We belong to God for whom we exist because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, through whom we exist. This is the ultimate expression of humility, self-denial, and love. The Father sent the Son and the Son gave Himself up for us. Talk about self-denial. Talk about denying one's rights. He didn't just deny Himself or deny His rights. He gave up His very life for us. And He didn't, he didn't die for us to continue to be individuals seeking after, seeking after our autonomy or self-actualization. He died for the church, the community of God. So that we could be built up like Christ. So like the Father and like the Son, we the church are to be motivated by love. Because that's who God is. 
That's what he modeled for us. Love for one another. And by being so motivated by love, we are acting in accord with the very character of God. And we are acting in accord with God's plan of salvation. So how does this work in our everyday lives? Okay, so how do we use knowledge properly? How do we, how do we aim for love and all that we know about God? Well, I've been asking myself this question all week. And the question that I've, I've been kind of, I've boiled it down to is, is I ask myself, how, how, am, I, how am I building up? others with this action. What I mean by that is what Paul has shown us here is we, there's two paths with your actions, with your knowledge, with your rights. You can build up one to ruin. You can build up one to their own destruction, or you can build up one for their edification. You can build up one for strengthening their walk with God. So with this action, Am I somehow encouraging a believer to sin or will it build her up in her faith? Those are our two choices with our knowledge. Because Paul's saying you're a builder either way. You're a builder either way. You're either building up for their destruction or you're building up for their edification. So let me give you an example of how I've applied this in my week. And it's slightly abstract, okay, but the principle's true nonetheless. So using the logic of the so-called knowledgeable Corinthians, truth, I am the head of the house. That's true. No one will argue with that. That is absolutely true. I'm the husband. I'm the father. I am the head of the household. But does that truth give me the right to act like a drill sergeant with my kids when they don't do what I asked them to do the first time? Okay, that drives me crazy, by the way. When my kids don't do what I ask them to do the first time, that's very difficult for me. And technically, I have a right to jump all over them, to tell them they're being disobedient, to hurry up, to do what I say. So what I found was when I chose to be impatient with my kids, to exercise my right based on truth, to pre prematurely hurry them along, what I found was that I became a stumbling block of sorts for them. Now, not in the same degree as we're looking at here with Paul, but, but similar. What I found was me choosing my right as head of the house over loving them with patience. Me choosing my right, it actually encouraged in my kids a response to rebel against me, to sin And conversely, when I chose loving patience over my right, when I just talked to them or asked them again nicely for the third time or even helped them to accomplish whatever it is that I need them to do, to stop watching TV if that's what I'm doing or stop reading if that's what I'm doing, to deny my rights as head of the house and to lovingly be patient with them, what I found was that they eventually ended up doing what I asked them to do. Not the first time. Maybe not the second or third, but they eventually did. And what's even more important than them finally accomplishing what I wanted them to do, what's even more important than that is they got a glimpse of God through my character of loving them with patience. Imagine if God treated us the way I often treat my kids. Do it now or else. God is so patient. He's so kind with us. 
And so by denying my right in this situation, and just being loving and patient, and yes, helping them do what I needed them to do, I'm actually strengthening their faith. I'm helping, helping, I'm helping them see in me their heavenly father. I've got a seven, a five, and a two-year-old. And I'm not positive, but I think my seven and five-year-old are true believers, have been born again. I want them to see God in me. So it's worth me taking that knowledge and setting my rights down and seeking love for their benefit, for their edification. So how do we correctly wield truth in the Christian community? Our truth is governed by love for the edification of believers. We want to be builders who build up, not believers who tear down. And we're already known by God. And so that sets us free. You are now free to deny your rights for something far greater than the selfish exercise of your rights. You're free to love. You're free to be, be an instrument in God's plan of salvation, of building up his children. And how does this work in our lives? Well, ask yourself the next time you are about to do something, will this encourage them to sin? Or will I somehow build up their faith? Choose the path of love. It's hard, but it's worth it. It's beautiful. And on that path, yes, you're giving up your rights, but you're experiencing true freedom. And you're showing them love. You're building up their faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have saved us in Christ. I pray for those of us who have trusted in your son for the forgiveness of our sins, that that we would be believers who seek to build up for the edification of others, the betterment of your family. Give us wisdom how to wield truth in love. Thank you for Bethel, Lord. I, I pray for our church. May, may we model your character by loving others. May we model what it is you're doing in each of us because of your son's death on our behalf. You're building us up. May we be instruments of righteousness in doing that. Teach us, Lord, how to understand when our flesh demands that we demand our rights. May we not be that tight. Help us, Lord, to be like Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.